welcome to another edition of the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas, and I have a uh, very special guest today. Uh, Zoe Kwok um, uh, runs Calm Clarity. Um, I met her at a uh, diversity conference where she really talked about some of the uh, neuroscience behind some of our biases. It was absolutely fascinating, um, and I just had to have her on to kind of talk about her work and kind of um, uh, what she's up to. So uh, Zoe, I'll let you kind of take it away. Tell me like what you do and tell me about uh, Calm Clarity. Sure. I'm so happy to be here to share um, about the brain and how unconscious bias is really a biological fact of how the human brain works. So I consider myself a social entrepreneur who uses neuroscience and mindfulness to address complex social challenges such as unconscious bias, socioeconomic inequality. Um, we also look at trauma and and how to build resilience, how to help people move towards post-traumatic growth. And a lot of the issues we have around unconscious bias are actually from a, the, a first-person experience. Like if you experience exclusion, if you experience bias, it is traumatizing. And yeah. there are a lot of um, issues about racial trauma or racialized trauma that go unaddressed that um, may be contributing to challenges that our society has around addressing unconscious bias and systemic bias. So uh, what is Calm Clarity and kind of how do you uh, address, how do you do the work through that? Sure, Calm Clarity is a social enterprise. We deliver uh, neuroscience-based leadership training, unconscious bias training, a neuroscience-based approach to building diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. Um, And what makes us different from other firms is that we basically explain how your brain works and and how all of us move through three patterns of brain activation and social conditioning and bias manifest from these three patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we have a, a, a negative emotion or negative experience, um, that experience is being associated with a part of the brain called the amygdala, mm-hmm. um, and it's a self-preservation system. In simple terms, I call it brain 1.0, this mm-hmm. pattern of activation where you might have a, a freeze, a flight, fight um, reaction. You get into a state of, of higher stress and arousal. You're worried about your safety, your status. Um, people experience psychological threat in the state um, when they talk about stereotype threat. You mm. know that you're not being seen and heard as an individual. You've been typecast as a group. All of that can activate brain 1.0. And if you feel like you're not in a dominant position, you have no visibility into how decisions are made. You have no influence in you know what's going to happen to you. It can also activate brain 1.0. And uh, there's another part of the brain where you experience positive emotions, experiences, and you crave more of these experiences. I call that brain 2.0. That's the reward system. Mm -hmm. Whenever you get prizes, you win um, some sort of reward, uh, you win a competition, you you move up in status, you are um, praised. Right, mm-hmm. that activates brain 2.0, and many of us get very attached to living in brain 2.0 and get it getting everything we want in brain 2.0 or controlling the situation because it puts us in brain, brain 2.0. And in many cases, um, when people are in dominant groups, right, mm-hmm. um, they live life in brain 2.0 without realizing the, the degree to which um, people who may not agree with them you know, would like to ha- live in a different way, but you're controlling all the resources. Right. You're not allocating them fairly to people who may want 
who have different cultures and may want different experiences. And a lot of times in Brain 2.0, we all feel like we're right, we're superior, mm -hmm. we're better than other people, yeah. and, and we favor people who are like us, yeah. right? And we're more comfortable when we're in Brain 2.0 because everything's going the way we want. And so in, in situations of bias, what's happening is what puts one group in Brain 2.0 puts another group in Brain 1.0. Right. It's almost right. like a zero-sum game between those two groups. Exactly. And to the degree that people can shift to this higher part of the brain that I call brain 3.0, it's when your prefrontal cortex isn't impaired by the activation of your freeze fight flight system, mm -hmm. brain 1.0, or the activation of your reward system, brain 2.0, right? Where you can see a bigger picture. Because in brain 2.0, you have tunnel vision. You just mm -hmm. see what you want and you think what you want is best. But in brain 3.0, you can start to see someone else's perspective and realize that they may disagree with you, but they're not wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that like they don't have to have your belief systems. They're a human being and we all deserve to feel safe. We all deserve to have opportunities. We all deserve to grow, right? And their growth doesn't actually take away from your own growth. Yeah. You have this idea that there's enough opportunities for all people and um, helping one group of people doesn't actually disadvantage the dominant group, right? Because right? you can see the systems in place. And unfortunately, with bias, people get locked into um, the subconscious parts of the brain. So brain 1.0 and brain 2.0 are actually below conscious awareness, mm. and you're not really in a state of being um, in control. Like you're, what I mean by that is you're not aligned with your core values and your aspirations. The person you think you are mm -hmm. and, and, and your ideals don't manifest when you're in brain 1.0 or brain 2.0. These impulses, these urges take over. And it's only when you're in brain 3.0 that you can express um, your higher self. You can express your core values, your aspirations. And what people fail to see is the person they think they are and what they actually do and how they actually behave, yeah. you know, um, that disconnect is because of what's um, been conditioned into brain 1.0 and what's been conditioned into brain 2.0. And so when people diverge from who they think they are, they have a hard time seeing it because you can't see yourself when you're in brain 2.0 accurately because yeah. um, it's a subconscious part of you. I called brain 1.0 the inner Godzilla because mm -hmm. it makes you want to smash things and disappear. Right. Like, and you experience outgroup aversion when you're around someone who's not like you. It can put you in brain 1.0. You're really uncomfortable and you blame that person for making you feel unsafe. Right. But actually it's your associations about that person that puts you in brain 1.0. It's not the other person, right? And then when you sit with someone who looks like you, it's almost like your brother from another mother or sister of that sort. When they went to the same college, when they like had the same major when they like the same sports team like you like them even more right yeah and and that has nothing to do with them being a great human being it just means they reflect you yeah right and that's activating brain two now you're comfortable you're relaxed and you suddenly want to spend more time with this person and if you know if you're in a leadership position you're more likely to mentor people and champion people who make you feel that way mm -hmm. right and and be on guard and not give feedback and not give mentorship to people who bring you unconsciously into brain 1.0 hmm. right because they're different from you yeah and so if you look at this on a you know micro like neurological basis right these little um patterns of brain activation actually can um drive a company to um reinforce systemic bias rather than to address it and neutralize it right um 
there's a lot there and so many different threads I'd kind of like to, to you know, poke and prod at and kind of tease out. But uh, the immediate question that comes to mind is, you know, how do we get to three Brain 3.0? Because that sounds like, you know, the place to be. <laughs> yeah, well, it's complicated in mm -hmm. the sense that you don't get there overnight because all the ways in which you, you've used your brain um, has built into a default mode or an autopilot mode. And whatever age you are, your brain has these like um, default neural pathways that self-activate in Brain 1.0 and Brain 2.0, all these associations are already programmed into it. Mm -hmm. So the f in Brain 3.0, there are different aspects of it that you develop first. One is, um, um, I would call it the met metacognitive capacity to recognize when you're in um, Brain 1.0 mm. or Brain 2.0 or Brain 3.0. And a lot of people overestimate that they're in Brain 3.0 all the time <laughs> and they're really in Brain 2.0, right. right? Because um, they just have this higher sense of like ego inflation, <laughs> you know? And, 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 but some people have um, the opposite where they always assume they're worse than they are, mm. you know? And so you start to realize like, there are people who constantly put themselves up and people constantly put themselves down. So having an accurate self-impression is not always easy, yeah. right? Um, but the key is there are biological feedback mechanisms where you can recognize when you're in a freeze, uh, flight, fight state, mm -hmm. when you're uncomfortable, when your heart is racing, when um, you're tired, you know, you don't have a lot of energy, you can't see the bigger picture, you have brain fog, right? And then with brain 2.0, it's also a state of sympathetic arousal. Like mm. you're not necessarily um, relaxed um, and easy. It's like there's this restless enthusiasm sometimes where you have so much energy, you just have urges and impulses and you can't control them, right? It's almost like a manic state or? It can be. Okay. There are different types of brain 2.0, okay. but it's almost like OCD in the mm. sense that if someone tells you another idea, you're like, that can't be true. Mm. You know, it's almost like um, you, you, you're in this, you're locked into something you think you have to have. Like imagine, um, you know, you're watching your favorite TV show and, and then it, the season ends and there's a cliffhanger and you're like, oh, now I need to watch the next season, right? Yeah. There's a sense of excitement. Like I can't wait for the next season. Like that that's what it can feel like, mm -hmm. right? But it can also feel like this anxiety that if you don't get to watch something, like say you're playing video games, you're on Facebook and all of a sudden someone takes your phone or turns off their video game and how upset you are, yeah. right? So, so Brain 1.0 and Brain 2.0 are like two sides of the same coin in the sense that when you are in Brain 2.0, you're getting what you want, you're, you're happy. Mm -hmm. But when all of a sudden you don't you see a path to getting what you want or is taken away from you, that inner Godzilla gets really upset, right? right? And for a lot of like, um, the issues, you know, we're experiencing around diversity is when one group, you know, has a certain feeling that they deserve, they're entitled to this status or this reward. And when another group is favored for mm -hmm. through affirmative action, people see that as a threat to mm. their status and they go into bring 1.0 yeah. and, and they reject these efforts. They resist these efforts. Right. So, again, they're not seeing a bigger picture. They're not in bring 3.0 seeing like what the past inequity has been and they just see that you know what they feel is they're entitled to is not being given to them yeah and it's interesting like one of the the threads you pull on there is this sort of difference between like a scarcity mindset and an abundance mindset and it seems like you know brain 1.0 and 2.0 are very much in this you know zero-sum game scarcity mindset like i've got to get mine or you're keeping me from getting mine yeah Whereas, there's a win-win a win-lose yeah. um, win type of 
thinking. Yeah. Right. Like for this people to move ahead, I'm losing. Mm. And so it seems like brain 3.0 is living more in this place of like abundance, like an awareness that there is, you know, if we can keep our heads on straight, there's actually enough for everybody here. Oh, well, brain 3.0 is, is a place of empowerment saying, um, the rules are broken, but Mm. we are the people who made the rules. Mm. So why don't we change the rules? Yeah. Right. Like the game doesn't have to be rigged because we accept that game. And if we don't accept that game, we should change the game. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's just saying like, we have that power to change the boxes we put people in. We Mm. have the power to change the game that people are playing. If the game is creating scarcity, we can change the game to create abundance, right? But it's this connection to the bigger picture, to this higher sense of self, and this um, empowerment or this intrinsic wisdom that you have inside you that people can figure this out. Right. Yeah. If we work together, if we collaborate, we can solve these challenges. Whereas in Brain 1.0, you're like, this is hopeless. The system's yeah. going to crush me. I have no say in this. I'm just a victim. Right. In Brain 2.0, it's just like, whatever that game is, I'm winning it. Yeah. And I'm not letting <laughs> these people take my place. Yeah. Right. Or, or I don't care if I got like a five mile advantage in this marathon, you yeah. know, like I'm going to win it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I don't care about who's behind me. Right. And so, but when you're in brain three point you're like, this marathon is not a fair marathon, yeah. <laughs> you know, and 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 it's structured in a way that we think we're winning the marathon. Um, we're a better human being, but actually, we're a better human being if we dismantle this marathon and rewrite it. Yeah, I mean, you remind me of um, uh, a story I heard about the origins of the game Monopoly, mm-hmm. which apparently was uh, invented by a woman. Um, as a satire of capitalism. And the normal rules are pretty much the rules we have today, but there was another round where you're supposed to go through the exact same thing again with completely different rules, which, you know, long story short, look m- much more like socialism, but they're very like, you know, th- the way that the money is distributed is completely different. Mm. And the game ends up being way more enjoyable, <laughs> but the whole thing was meant to be like this object lesson in economics. And it was bought by a man who quickly dismantled the whole second half of the game and just focused on the get stuff, you know. But, like, when I think about what you're describing, to me, like, 1.0 and 2.0 are very much, like, accepting the rules of the game as a given and not even thinking about the fact that, oh, no, this is our board, these are our pieces. We could play this completely differently if we wanted to. Yeah, I mean, there's this wonderful wonderful saying from Einstein, no problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it. Mm. And we as human beings, um, we're creating our problems when we're at brain 1.0 or brain 2.0 because these are unconscious aspects of our mind, yeah. right? The urges and impulses come, like the herd effect, right? Mm. I remember being in business school and everybody wanted a job in consulting or investment banking and if you could really be like like um, the top of the cream of the crop right you'd end up in private equity mm. <laughs> you know and yeah. and and those are the sexy things so everybody was going down this track and if you didn't you felt like there was something wrong with you yeah. there's a sense of fomo even if you had another plan even if you knew this wasn't your dream everyone felt 
pressured into consulting or investment management and you wouldn't feel comfortable with yourself unless you've been there done it yeah right and so i had already done consulting so i was like i don't need to like run this rat race yeah right and and investment banking i'd seen my friends go through it you know and all the hours they put in slogging it and i was like I don't really want to run that rat race, right? But then when it came to private equity and venture capital, I was like, maybe I need to learn about this rat race, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and so, because there must be a reason why everyone wants to do this, yeah. right? And and again, like I followed, you know, the herd effect and took classes and went on, you know, tours of venture capital firms in in um, in, in California in the Bay Area, and. It was an interesting experience. I ended up, it was a good thing because I ended up working in growth capital investment years later in, in Vietnam. Um, but the great thing was I had that exposure in the US at Wharton um, and and it did help me. But it's an example of how, you know, when you're in Brain 2.0, you just want to be, you know, at the top of the pack. Yeah. You don't want to be left behind, right? And um, a lot of people, after after business school ended up in consulting or investment banking and being unhappy and mm. so they left after a few years because this really wasn't what they wanted to do but they felt they had to because everyone else was doing it yeah. you know and so we are no matter how intelligent you are no matter how high your IQ is like these herd effects you know are unconsciously powerful yeah. right and and brain 2.0 right that that's what that was everyone was jumping for, through hoops for these prizes these coveted positions and these very elite industries and it was very hard to resist that yeah. right and and i think when we look at the world you know there's hierarchies and brain 2.0 just wants to climb up that social yeah. ladder it climbs up the corporate ladder it climbs up any ladder so we join country clubs in philadelphia they join the union league they join the pyramid club they join the fiddler club <laughs> you know mm -hmm. um and that's not necessarily a bad thing but you want to be where the the who's who in the world are and you feel like you're moving up mm -hmm. does anyone want to be with the people at the bottom of the pyramid no <laughs> right it's stigmatized to like yeah. come out and let people know that you were poor or impoverished or that you have addiction issues or all these things and so a lot of times we never face the truth because we just want to escape it into bring 2.0 yeah right and that's one of the reasons why we have so many issues around unconscious bias because people don't want to see the shadow mm. right and the things they don't want the world to know about them, the masks that they put on to cover aspects of themselves that are socially stigmatized, that we've been socially conditioned to see as negative, yeah. right? And the more I read about, you know, American history, what happened after Reconstruction, mm. um, the mass incarceration system, the I'm, I'm reading the new Jim Crow now, and you realize to what degree, like, um, you know, um, racism, Right is embedded into the criminal justice system, mm -hmm. and people refuse to to really see it because they don't want to acknowledge th yeah. that they're reinforcing racist um, systems. Right, but if you look at the statistics, it can't be anything other than racist. Yeah. <laughs> right, and yet people are having a hard time, like like reconciling how these laws were. Um, bias to put black people in jail to put people of color in jail and to be lenient on white people yeah. and that's because the dominant group you know when they look at um, criminality of 
um, their own, right? Um, they're, they're just more empathetic and have more lenient. They'll be like, oh, this person just had a bad childhood or, you know, had a bad start in life. Let's give this person a break, yeah. right? But when they see out groups, they'll be like, this is, they pathologize out groups and say, this is because, you know, there's something innately evil or right. bad about this person. But it, they can't see the human side of them because they're already looking at them and bring 1.0 and dehumanizing them, right? And, and that's really a shame because when we look at our brain, like we have less empathy for our groups. As long as we otherize another human being, um, just like the Eagles um, fans will otherize the Cowboys fans, sure. right? <laughs> like, like when they get injured, you might even cheer, you know, but you would never cheer for an Eagles to be injured, right? Yeah. Like, like this us versus them mentality, um, you know, the brain can compartmentalize and see out groups as inferior and less human than in groups, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times the criminal justice system, um, judges, um, lawyers, prosecutors, they don't realize they're doing that, you know? And, and the training that I do, we bring all these patterns to light and say, to what degree is your brain and brain 1.0 mm -hmm. when you have to make a decision about an outgroup. Mm. To what degree is your brain and brain 2.0 when you have to make a decision about someone in your in-group and, and does that person deserve to be promoted? Yeah. Or do you just want to promote them because you feel comfortable around them? Yeah. Right? That's, yeah, and there's a lot there. You're reminding me, I saw, um, I saw Malcolm Gladwell speak last night and he was his new book talks a lot about how... Um, deception works, how we have this narrative of deception where um, if someone got deceived, it's probably because they're not very smart, or if someone did fool somebody, it's because they're super clever, and he points at all these examples in history, Bernie Madoff being one where that's not even a little bit true. Bernie Madoff was not very smart, and the people he fooled were like billionaires, you know, and really, you know, really good with money. However, um, he was like them in the sense that he preyed upon people of his own ethnicity. Yes, yeah, exactly. So he used Brain 2.0 to con them. Exactly, and and there is and you know to that point, he sort of talks about uh, work of someone named Levine, I think, who talks a lot about how there's sort of a default trust we go to, you know, that just in evolutionarily terms was just the better way to stay alive and to you know propagate, and what happens when you sort of have you know problematic you know issues between police officers and African American community is that gets turned off and there's a distrust now. That goes against that where, you know, they stop a person and they immediately are paranoid about that person. Like systemically, they've been trained to be paranoid about that person. Mm -hmm. And what you're talking about reminds me of that. It's sort of like, it's almost as if, Amer if America itself was sort of like half in, half in brain 2.0 and half in brain 1.0. And we're, then we're seeing turns. a lot of, yeah, we're seeing a lot of the tensions uh, come from that. That's definitely true. Um, when I think about... Um, how, because I grew up in a low-income community and I live in a community that is experiencing an escalation of violence, right? Um, mm -hmm. on, on August 15th, when there was a quintuple shooting where five people were shot in a drive-by shooting, that's two blocks from where I live. Oh my God. It happened on the way I take to walk to the subway and mm. come back, right? And so it, it's painful and it, it is scary. Like when you're around violence of that sort, um, your amygdala goes into freeze flight fight mode right and it's a heightened state of stress and fear and worry um and even though i wasn't directly involved in the event i heard the, the gunshots right and i oh heard the ambulance and you know that type of trauma does freeze itself a little bit in in the nervous system and 
I was in the subway on June 5th of this year um, at nighttime around 9 o'clock when shots broke out in the in the car um, next door. So luckily I was safe in my car, but at that point we didn't know what it was, yeah. right? And it turned out to be isolated. It wasn't a mass shooting. We were safe. It was over. But that's scary too, and yeah. that's also traumatic in its own way. And um, the thing is, is you know, I could be terrified of, of taking the subway. I could become terrified of walking in my neighborhood. But I have to tell myself, like, these are isolated events. Yeah. And and every neighbor of mine is pretty safe. They're not going to shoot me. You know, like, the people come to the neighborhood to do the drive-by shooting. You could be at the wrong place at the wrong time. But for the most part, 99% of the day, there are no shootings. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You are safe, you know, for the most part. You just can't control being at the wrong place at the wrong time. And... The issue, though, is that, like, um, if, you've, if you've been a victim of that, though, like, I yeah. wasn't directly victimized, you get into Brain 1.0 about everyone, yeah. right? So you're like, is the next person going to shoot me? Is anyone yeah. who looks like the shooter going to shoot me, yeah. right? And I don't think they do enough PTSD um, therapy for police officers mm. so that they're not um, so traumatized that everyone who looks like someone who once held a gun on them or attacked them, sure. you know, is triggering that same um, uh, effect in the amygdala. It's like hijacking the amygdala, right? And so, um, to be honest, like, I've been, I felt more danger when I'm, I'm around white people. Sure. <laughs> you yeah. know, as a, as a woman of color sometimes. And um, I have to tell myself, not all white people are racist. Mm -hmm. But when you come across a few people who've said horrible things, you're just like, is that next white person going to yeah. do the same thing to me? Right. And I have to say, no, there's like very different groups of people. And, you know, this person is not common. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and m most of my interactions with white people, I am not a victim of racism. Like they don't say racist things. Like they don't say microaggressive things, but there are these isolated incidents that happen with some frequency. <laughs> right. Sure. And, and I have to be aware that the, this could happen, but be willing to give most white people the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Right. And, and that can be hard because your brain gets conditioned to expect this because you don't like they say twice bitten. I mean, once bitten, twice shy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and the key is that your amygdala doesn't want you to experience these things again, and it may be reenacting this uh, anticipation in your mind so that you can avoid it. Yeah. But that creates the bias. Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel like bias is in some ways almost like a psychological autoimmune disorder. It's a sort of like your your mind overprotecting you mm -hmm. like to the point of like issuing logic and statistics like I know I also like and I've never had what I would call I've had some you know bad experiences with officers police officers I've had way more just perfectly normal experiences with police officers um, and I've certainly heard many stories of horrible you know interactions between African-Americans and police officers and so I have this like you know I tense up when I see a police car um, and I know that um, while I am, as a black man, I am far more likely than a white man to suffer something bad at the hands of a police officer, the actual odds of it are still very low, like just, you know, of it happening at all to me. Mm -hmm. And it's actually way worse for a Native American, <laughs> right, mm -hmm. <laughs> to have a, a bad outcome. So it's sort of like having that context helps, but it is something that I have to actively remind myself of because that 
the automatic, the unconscious response is just, oh, I could be in danger here, right? Exactly. So so that's where Brain 3.0 comes online. Yeah. The thing is, if you have um, been activating Brain 3.0 on a regular basis, is mm-hmm. that it becomes more, more of your default state, like you mm-hmm. spend more and more of your life in Brain 3.0, its capacity to calm brain 1.0 and brain 2.0 in an emergency and in a crisis situation is much stronger, mm-hmm. right? So you don't get fully hijacked into these states. And and what's missing in our society is that intentional development, cultivation, and strengthening of brain 3.0 so that we don't have to live in brain 1.0 and 2.0 longer than makes sense. Right. Yeah. These parts of the brain will always get triggered by danger or by reward, and it can hijack you. Like so many times, people, um, for instance, they know that this um, job or career isn't what makes them happy, but because it pays so well or the perks are so nice, they mm. just stay year after year after year, right? And and you can just get used to living this very posh life that doesn't make you happy versus take time to explore something that really does give you a sense of fulfillment and joy. Mm -hmm. And so we're constantly hijacked by brain 2.0 and people don't realize to what degree just giving people incentives and rewarding them for certain behaviors is taking them out of brain 3.0 because they're not doing it for the intrinsic reason um, or motivation. They're doing it because of an external extrinsic reward, Mm -hmm. right? And so as long as people are in that state, when the reward is threatened or taken away, right, um, they will fight the outgroups, right? Mm. They will scapegoat the outgroups. Yeah. Like there will, be, um, there will be tension, right, because there's that scarcity um, perception that people see. Um, and the key is to realize that you see scarcity in brain 2.0, mm-hmm. right? And when you're in brain 3.0, you start to realize like a lot of the scarcity is artificial, yeah. Right. Accelerators make one prize, you know, yeah. like people design the game. Like if you look at all the reality TV games, they're all designed to create scarcity. Yeah. Right. But it's artificial, yeah. you know, and if you are willing to play that game, then you accept that scarcity. But if you just go, well, I, I actually if I'm in brain 3.0, I can actually create more fulfillment and joy and follow something that gives me passion, right? Yeah. And I can't actually create wealth that way because I'm creating something of value. It's risky when you go off the beaten path, when mm-hmm. you're not following social conditioning, but the fulfillment and joy actually rises exponentially mm. because you're taking ownership of it, yeah. right? And and the interesting thing about the unconscious brain is that it's really driven by brain 1.0 and brain 2.0. Right. And so a lot of your biases, you know, they call it emotional valence. Right. It's just when something makes you upset and you act out on it (laughs) and something makes you feel like you're going to get what you want and you act towards it. Right. Um, But a lot of our feelings towards outgroups, a lot of our feelings towards um, management or, you know, promotions and everything is different, whether those systems activate brain 1.0, brain 2.0 or brain 3.0. Right. And so if you have management by punishment (laughs) Mm. you know like people become cognitively impaired if you have management by rewards people may start to um act in ways that are unethical 
to get the shortcut to those rewards. Yeah. Right. Like look at what happened at Wells Fargo. They created fake accounts and they got their bonuses. Right. Yeah. And no one was watching, <laughs> you know, or even the f financial crisis. People were like everyone's selling this. We should sell it, too. <laughs> you yeah. know, and there was no thinking about the consequences. No one really understood the consequences. Um, but in Brain 3.0, people ask questions and say, what exactly are we participating in? What exactly are we contributing to? And does this reflect my values, my aspirations, who I want to be in the world? And if it doesn't, um, I should find my own path. I should say no to this. I should mm -hmm. have the strength and the sense of power to stand up for what I believe in, right? Um, but when you're in Brain 2.0, you're like, well, this is the system. Yeah. I'll just go along with it. And um, so a lot of people are not truly racist. They're just saying, I do what the system told me, yeah. right? And if the system is biased, I'm not biased. I'm just following the system. Right. <laughs> and what, what I'm really curious about, because you talk about getting to the point where you've flexed that brain 3.0 muscle enough to where it becomes the thing that's a little more automatic. Like, what does that practice look like? What are the kind of activities that help, you know, expand that capacity? Sure. In my case, a lot of it was meditation, mm. right? Um, in the uh, mindfulness tradition, you there's, um, there's actually these 10 and a half day retreats where all you do is sit and watch your mind all mm. day long, you know, like almost for 11 hours a day, you're just watching um, how your mind works. And yours. And for me specifically, I didn't follow the traditional instructions. I was using neuroscience to understand what was happening in the brain as I watched my mind. So there's this thing called the default mode network that self-activates whenever you're not doing any particular task, which is why they call it the default mode. And you're, they, the scientists, when they found out about this, they realized um, there's never a time when your brain's not burning calories. Mm. It's always consuming um, glucose, right? Hmm. And oxygen. And they're like, but you're not doing anything in particular. So what is it actually doing? And there's always these same structures. So they call it the default mode network. So they began to study like what activities are associated with the activation of the default mode network. Like, can you describe what's happening? So people are like, oh, I'm daydreaming. I'm thinking about dinner. I'm thinking about planning whatever's happening this weekend. I'm going into the past and like beating myself up about stuff I could have done better or upset about past conversations and how dare this person do this or that, right? Um, and it turns out the default mode network is actually helping you navigate your social world, which is a world of complex relationships, right? And scientists have realized that the size of an animal's brain is correlated with how big the tribe it na it's, it's its natural environment. So if the tribe is like 30 or herd is 30 animals, it's a certain size. If the natural um, herd is like 400 or 500, like the size gets bigger because you're trying to have relationships with all these individuals. Huh. Human brains are the largest because we live in civilizations of thousands of people, right? Yeah. <laughs> there's so many, like even in your company, there's so many complex relationships to manage across all the levels, right? And you kind of have to keep track of who's sleeping with who, you know, who's mad at who, right, you right, know, right. Yeah. Like things like that. And, um, and so, uh, but the default mode network, that's what it's doing. A lot of it is processing your social world, hmm. you know, and, and helping you navigate like decisions you have to make either today or soon. Um, and so what they realized is like it serves a function. It's helping you with your social world. Um, and the reason why they allocate so much real estate to your social world is because your social world is extremely important, mm -hmm. right? That's why 
like if the default mode is making sense of the social world, then that's the most important thing that human the human brain was designed for, right? So, so that's a fascinating conclusion on yeah. its own. But then when you look at the default mode network, like a lot of times it's racing, racing, racing. People call it the monkey mind. It just like jumps from thought to thought to thought and you can't focus, right? And it drives a lot of people crazy, especially at 2 a.m. when you're trying to sleep, yeah. you know? And so... Um, the key with uh, mindfulness meditation is you become familiar with this default mode network and the patterns. Hmm. What types of things does it like to obsess over? You know, what types of things is it trying to do? You know, when you're trying to do nothing at all and relax, like what types of, of crises is it trying to prevent in your life, right? It's like, oh, you forgot to you know buy groceries or like oh you you need to email your client or you need to email your boss right like it's 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 most of the time it's trying to help you Mm -hmm. so sometimes you can actually talk to your default mode network and say you know i'm just going to write this down and then you're going to relax and then i'm going to go to bed right (laughs) um and and negotiate with it and sometimes that works um but what i found when i was like uh, meditating for 10 days and just watching my monkey mind go crazy this default mode network as i saw that it would move between brain 1.0 you know the inner godzilla yeah. mad at the past yeah. right at brain 2.0 being like how do i get what i want yeah you know yeah. how do i get the big car in the dream house and the um handsome husband or whatever it was right <laughs> you know and, or it would just go into these silly daydreams right and fantasies or um Every once in a while, I would go into Brain 3.0 and something like a eureka moment would happen where pieces came together. I'm like, oh, now I understand my life better or I have a better sense of what my purpose is or what went wrong in this relationship with my parents and be able to forgive them for it or what went wrong in other relationships and realizing how my contribution helped, you know, that person um, and I end up in this place. It wasn't just that person's fault, <laughs> you mm. know? Um, but you start to to see your life in a different way when you're in Brain 3.0. You see how you contribute to it. You see the patterns that you brought to the table. And then I sincerely wanted to change those patterns, right? And I saw how when I was in Brain 1.0, I would cause fights. I would escalate mm. issues. Um, I would escalate conflict. And how when I was in Brain 2.0, I didn't see that other person as a human being. I was like, this person is either my competitor, this person is my obstacle, mm-hmm. you know, or this person is my ally, right. right? But it was never like, who is this person and what do they want and what are their hopes and their dreams? Right, you it was know? always in the context of you and what you wanted, yeah. <laughs> exactly, and I was just like, no one should like me when I'm in Brain 2.0 <laughs> treating them this way. Yeah. No, and in both Brain 1.0 and Brain 2.0, it's dehumanizing, yeah. right? You don't see people as human beings. You see them as objects or threats or, or allies, right? Um, but it's not until you're in Brain 3.0 that you're like, I can actually be that person I, I want to see in the mirror. Mm-hmm. You know, I can actually see another human being for their potential and, and help them to... Um, to become the best person they can be. And it's not just about making them do what I want them to do, mm-hmm. you know? And so these these insights started to build then about like being, noticing how I felt different and the biofeedback signs, um, the biofeedback mechanisms that let me know like I'm in brain 1.0, the stories in my brain you know, or stories of being a victim or, mm. you know, having people take away my power, <laughs> you know, and, and the stories in Brain 2.0 was all about pushing for what I wanted mm-hmm. and like fighting the system and being the hero and having the glory. And I was like, 
you know, when you think of yourself as a savior, you're not in brain three, four now, right. you know, like there's just something wrong with that picture where you, you're seeing yourself as superior to someone else. Mm. Right. And, and so when you start to, to understand how we move through these different patterns, right, even in the single um, minute, you could move through these patterns, then what, I realize is I need to make the choices when I'm in Brain 3.0. Like, what does Brain 3.0 tell me about this person or this situation? Because when I see them in Brain 1.0, I don't see the real person. When I see them in Brain 2.0, I don't really see them. It's only when I see them in Brain 3.0 that I can actually see who they are and what they care about and, and, and f help them build their potential, mm -hmm. right? And I think the problem, the challenges in our society is that you have to cultivate brain 3.0, right? It, it doesn't happen that naturally, right? Because right? we're surrounded by carrots and sticks. And also the culture or the neighborhood, the environment that we're around, um, most of the time, like only people who are economically stable, mm. right, are able to spend a lot of time in brain 3.0. But even then, they may be um, compelled by greed, <laughs> you know, and, and self um um, um, enhancement and ego enhancement to spend all their time in Brain 2.0, mm -hmm. right? So, um, and what I saw in the inner city is that all the violence and all the trauma and the systemic disinvestment of these neighborhoods, right, was making it very hard for people to spend any time in Brain 3.0. So it's almost like um, um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Yeah. If you don't get safety and security, then Brain 1.0 was alert, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and no one likes to in brain 1.0 all the time so we escape into brain 2.0 with immediate gratification so people are buying alcohol um, they're they're eating junk food they're um, even self-medicating getting into drugs to escape these feelings to numb these feelings people buy cadillacs and mercedes and beamers that they can't really afford you know mm -hmm. but it's 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 so awesome to have these luxury goods yeah. right people um, are making huge purchases because they can't see the long term where they think I might be dead anyway. I might as well enjoy this yeah. now. You know, that all shows you they're not in Brain 3.0, right? And there are not a lot of role models from 3.0 mm. if everyone has a sense of urgency and, and think they could die tomorrow. Yeah. Right? And so what can we do to help cultivate, to create environments that actually allow people to spend more time in Brain 3.0? And so I guess I was an outlier in that I grew up in such a dangerous environment. And yet somehow I kept um, looking at the bigger picture and mm -hmm. I kept being exposed to books and um, even TV shows like Star Trek, which, which mm -hmm. help you see a bigger picture, right? Mm -hmm. and, and would continuously activate Brain 3.0 because I love learning and I became like top of my class, not because I was trying to get A's, but because I loved learning, right? Right. And so um, it can be intrinsically developed, but it's rare, you know, right. in these environments. And I'm lucky that I just had the curiosity to keep asking questions um, and have that take me into Brain 3.0 instead of wallowing in anger and, and hostility, you know, or, or self-medication, um, um, mm -hmm. you know. And so I feel like in society, it's hard to face the things that put people in Brain 1.0 because but you have to do that in brain 3.0 yeah. right if you keep running away from it in brain 2.0 
then you never understand the underlying issues and you never address the root causes. And it's really uncomfortable work, right? So one of the challenges with unconscious bias training is to teach people about Brain (laughs) 1.0 and that looking at these issues will activate Brain 1.0, right? It's going to trigger a lot of um, stories that you told about yourself and when you realize that they're not true, Mm. (laughs) people want to defend those um, stories in Brain 2.0. Right. And and all of this is like activated and you're in this state of struggle. Like what stories are true about me? (laughs) Right. And that psychological um, identity uh, threat. Right. Can bring people into brain 1.0. And we just say, hey, you know, it's going to happen, but you have to hold space. And if you can hold space to look at these emotions, these scripts, these stories, your social conditioning, why brain 1.0 is being activated, then you can transform that and bring yourself into brain 3.0 to look at that, right? But it, you have to be willing to spend time doing this. Yeah. And a lot of people, as soon as they feel uncomfortable, they run into brain 2.0, yeah. and then they don't get into brain 3.0. Yeah, and that's something, like, I'm really curious about with, um, like, that transformation, because, like, you know, I'm, I'm in therapy myself, and we talk a lot about sort of negative thought patterns, and, um, like, there's definitely a pattern around recognizing it sometimes through a physiological response you're noticing or just through a thought pattern like oh i know that thought pattern right Mm -hmm. but then like what what have you learned about or what do you like recommend around saying okay i'm at the point where i recognize i'm i i see it i'm in brain 1.0 or i see it i'm in brain 2.0 like what's the next step then to sort of be like okay how do i get to 3.0 sure so then there are different ways to do it um what they're they're the approaches I find the most helpful is to activate your parasympathetic nervous system mm. through like long breathing cycles. Mm. So um, I, I teach six three six three breathing. So you're gonna inhale for six seconds, mm-hmm. hold for three seconds, exhale for six seconds, hold for three seconds. You do that over and over again for a few minutes and your sympathetic nervous system calms down, your body switches into parasympathetic mode more, hmm. and more blood flow will go to brain 3.0. Interesting. Okay. So sometimes people forget that, like, they think you magically turn on brain 3.0, and I'm just like, if you're in sympathetic mode, there's not enough blood flow there. Huh. So you got to do this breathing. Some people do yoga, they do other things to help that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's a lot of stress hormones in your body, it's actually good to work out, to go for a run, to do huh. moderate cardio. And I consume the stress hormones because it's called the the fight or flight response for a reason. Right. If you no longer fight or flight, then go exercise. Right. And go like burn (laughs) this energy off, you know, because if you stay there, it just stays in your body. Yeah. You know, so that's why exercise is such a strong um, treatment for depression, anxiety, Mm. right? Because you're just burning out excess stress hormones. Yeah. Um, That helps. Um, A third thing to do once you realize like you can identify that you're in these states right um i i call it the compassion meditation um Mm. in the buddhist tradition it's 2500 years old i think the original name is metta metta Mm. can be translated as loving kindness Hmm. um and so it's very simple um all it involves is wishing really um, positive things for yourself and for other people. Mm-hmm. So you begin by thinking of yourself. And there are these standard wordings that everyone uses, but you can customize the wordings to make sense for you. Mm-hmm. So I kind of take a more traditional approach and say, 
Um, so you visualize like a younger version of yourself in a hard situation. You try to have compassion and sympathy for where you were at the time. And then you say, may I be happy? Mm. May I be healthy? May I be safe? You're genuinely sending that goodwill to yourself. May I be peaceful? May I be prosperous? May I live in harmony with others? People can change it and say, may I be loved? May I be loved unconditionally? May I meet many good friends? May I live with ease? Like you can add more things to it. But the point is you're wishing these good things for yourself, mm. knowing that you like all human beings are worthy of unconditional love and deserve these things yeah. right? as much as any other human being does. And, and I add the visualization that you imagine the younger version of you absorbing this, mm. right. And like blossoming like a flower in the sun, right. And, and becoming stronger, more confident and thriving, like taking this in. And then, um, you wish this for your loved ones. It could be your family, your best friends. And you imagine, you know, if it's your family, I tell people to visualize everyone holding hands in a circle, mm. right? And you can say, may my family be happy, healthy, safe, peaceful, prosperous, live in harmony and so forth, right? Um, and then you visualize like a, that love going to all of them and them taking it in and becoming stronger and blossoming, right? And, and you can keep adding this to coworkers, you can imagine strangers you can imagine someone you're mad at mm. and knowing they're in a hard situation of probably activating brain one porno brain two porno which is why they're treating you this way if they could be in brain three porno they would also be happier so you make these wishes for them and imagine that you and them are you know living in harmony working together in more harmony that they're getting whatever support they need to be in brain three porno to heal right and that can actually change the way you see them because you innately have more compassion and you can see them as a human being. The wonderful thing about this practice, right, the more you do it, you're activating the networks for compassion mm. in Brain 3.0 and you're connecting to your parasympathetic nervous system. You're activating the oxytocin system. Mm. <coughs> and so with more oxytocin in your body, like you feel more connected to all people. Mm. It's the pro-social system that turns on. And you start to, instead of having in-groups and out-groups, you start to see all human beings as one common in-group. Yeah. You know, and, and um, there isn't an, an us versus them. There's a we at that point. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's, that, that, that's fascinating. Um, I kind of want to hit one more um, topic before we, before we finished. Um, one of the most compelling things I saw in um, the literature and, and, and the, uh, the things you've been talking about is there's kind of this grid of like people who are in like 1.0, 2.0, 3.0 and then like how people who are in 1.0 interact with people who are in 2.0 or how people who are in 3.0 act. And it's just fascinating because it really draws this spectrum of human behavior and sort of sees why it's so important to get to 3.0 and why you can't have things like innovation or a healthy democracy or any of these things until everyone is kind of in 3.0. But can you tell me a little more about those like interrelationships? Sure. So our emotional states are contagious. These brain patterns are contagious, right? And so um, they talk about the mob effect. When the entire mob is brain, in brain 1.0, you have riots, mm. right? When the um, entire mob is in brain 2.0, you have what they call the financial crisis in Wall mm. Street, right? Where everyone's just doing what it takes to move ahead, not caring about the consequences. And um, 
what what I think about right is how different the world would be if the leaders were in Brain 3.0 mm. because the um, brain activation pattern of the leaders is the most contagious hmm. based on research, right? So if you're the, the head of your company is having a really bad day and taking it out on people, the entire company like feels it and shuts down. If the head of the company can manage their emotions and be very positive and supportive and compassionate, they create that safety where everyone can start to feel what they're feeling, mm-hmm. right? And be truthful. But if the, the, the top person only wants to hear what they want to hear and they shoot the messenger then it's not safe to share bad news and no one shares anything right and so um the the brain activation of the top person is important right and and so when leaders are in brain 3.0 like mahatma gandhi like nelson mandela like martin luther king right thousands of people are attracted to them mm-hmm. right whenever the, the dalai lama speaks thousands of people turn up right yeah. because we're actually hungry for that inspiration to be elevated into brain 3.0 mm. and so that's why a lot of my work is around leadership training and development um, inclusive leadership that basically means leadership in brain 3.0 yeah. right and and so when people are in brain 3.0 they're not controlled by their urges their impulses their ego right and their fears right they they they're not stuck with limiting belief systems right they they've you can see beyond that you can see that you're bigger than you know the patterns of your past the past doesn't hold you back your past doesn't define or limit who you are you know but in society we may say like oh there's this caste system if you were born in this caste you can't move beyond this level Mm -hmm. right if you were born in inner city you're gonna you have this trajectory and people can't see like that's not true you can actually move past that trajectory right in the modern world we no longer impose these brain two porno hierarchies on people arbitrarily, except, um, you know, when um, the system has systemic bias, mm-hmm. right? And that's the only time when you start to see like a person is trying to leave a box and society puts them back in that box yeah. over and over again until that person has learned helplessness and they stop trying, yeah. right? And that's what mass incarceration is doing to all these black and brown communities. Right, creating a sense of hopelessness and learned helplessness because their efforts don't get rewarded, right? Um, and so, so that I think it's heartbreaking, mm-hmm. right? And then, but the the scripts we have about this is what actually locks us into brain one point now. Mm-hmm. So, the sh- the scripts that a leader has, and they project these expectations on different groups of people, then people are bound by those scripts. They internalize that social conditioning. And to the degree that the leadership is dismantling these limiting scripts, this bias, right? And saying, if you're black, you can be CEO. If you're black, you can be president. Um, that helps. But then you also have to look at the micro behaviors mm-hmm. that people experience. Like, is it in line with that? Are they, are they personally being told that they have that potential? to move towards college, to move towards graduate school, or to move towards leadership positions, right? And unfortunately, I know with my work building the Collective Success Network, which is a nonprofit organization helping first-generation college students navigate through college and beyond college by connecting them with professionals to give them mentorship, career advice, career guidance. Um, So many of our students, they don't get the, the... validation the affirmation the encouragement to see themselves moving forward (laughs) 
right? And, and in some cases, students experience racism at school in the sense that they get accused of plagiarism or they're told they can't have written their paper, they can't have done these things because of the way they look, mm -hmm. right? Instead of saying, you have a limited potential, the professors limit their potential and say, you could not have done this. What right do they have to say that, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so, um, unfortunately, so many people are still getting negative feedback on their potential and other people limiting them, telling them that they can't go beyond a certain point. And, and that's systemic bias because that has nothing to do with them as individuals. That has to do with someone projecting them into a group or putting them in a box mm -hmm. and not seeing them as human beings. Yeah. So, uh, so just to, to, to close out, what is kind of like your hope for your work? Like what is it... Um, you you hope to accomplish what is what, what, what is it written like what are you kind of working on right now sure i think the most important thing that i feel where we can make a contribution with our neuroscience and mindfulness framework right now is towards genuine inclusion mm. right because there are so many companies who spend millions of dollars on unconscious bias training diversity equity inclusion but they run these initiatives in such a way that they trigger bring 1.0 and bring 2.0 and their staff right. and people get defensive the intention gets undermined and everyone says unconscious bias training doesn't work or these initiatives don't lead to real changes in behavior and they fail and they, they never want to spend money on it again mm -hmm. and I'm like all you did was trigger bring 1.0 and bring 2.0 and people don't change yeah <laughs> you know you have to bring people into bring 3.0 so they can see their patterns and habits and actually re rewire them to the gr degree that your your program didn't do that. It was going to fail because yeah. you're not understanding how the, the brain works, right? You haven't taken the neuroscience into account, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so, of course, it's going to backfire if you're going to trigger brain 1.0 and brain 2.0. And so I hope that our approach to deconstructing unconscious bias and to um, building inclusion as building up the organization's capacity to be in Brain 3.0, like that's going to make a genuine dent in, in, in this world, right? And all the programs that corporations are, are trying to do to spur innovation, to spur collaboration can be enhanced by true diversity. Mm -hmm. But you have to keep in mind, like, are we bringing the staff into Brain 3.0, yeah. <laughs> right? And I think um, my hope is when we share this work and the actual impact it makes on the staff and the culture, will enable people to genuinely tackle unconscious bias, yeah. to genuinely bring people of all backgrounds um, into Brain 3.0 at work. And then, you know, systems, behaviors, um, the entire company culture will transform. Yeah. Well, Zwei, thank you so much for being on the podcast. My pleasure. So much fun. <laughs> thank yeah. you. Um, for the Cognitive Bias Podcast, I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas, and we will see you next time.